you're listening to your favorite podcast yes it's the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks please refrain from bombing smoking and kissing during this podcast hello and welcome to the film file i'm lee ford I'm Andy Beacon. Andy, I'm surprised you're with us because it's incredibly hot outside. I thought you would be a small puddle in a bucket by now as you melted away like the wicked witch from uh, Wizard of Oz. You're not a heat person, are you? I'm not a heat person. And I also hate those uh, buzzy things that like dominate the skies at this time of year with their drones. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I hate all stingy things, be it bees and wasps. The whole lot, I've got a phobia of them. So at this time of year, going out outdoors is it's like I'm constantly like my eyes are darting everywhere, looking for anything buzzing, and then it's like move, move, move. Oh, it seems like they're everywhere. I know there's hardly any anyone who looks out their window. And I will go, I can't see a thing. But to me, there's <laughs> millions of them in my garden. That's how that's how my mentality goes. Phobias are awful. Yeah, oh. I I don't have many in the way of phobias. I'm I'm not keen on spiders but I'm not terrified. I'll do the duty and put them outside, but I, I'm not, I don't like them. It's not much that I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of. Werewolves. To show how massive my phobia of bees and wasps is, a few months ago, the wife bought some new cushion covers and she got some nice uh, summery kind of ones. And two of them were bees. And there was one which was a giant bee and it was in fine detail. It wasn't like a cartoonish one. It was like a bee. And there was other one which, which was like a load of bees. And they all looked perfectly real. And I came in from work after a close, like not knowing she'd ordered these, switched on the light in the living room, went, ah! switched off the light in the living room, closed the living room door and went inside the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> she that, she returned those ones and got some with cartoony bees on. I'm fine with cartoony bees, but anything that looks real, no, it creeps me. So the worst thing for you then is out on a hot day, being surrounded by clowns with bees in their mouth. Yes, clowns with bees in the mouth. And it's interesting that we are talking about phobia of bees. And this one wasn't planned at all but we are talking about wicker man later which uh, the are. remake was famous for its bees scene you know what blown my brain this week that jurassic park is 30 years old refuse to believe it it's it's incredible to believe that i mean we're still getting sequels uh, which are all inferior to something that came out 30 years ago uh, including effects wise in my opinion yeah that the world films have looked they're not aging as well as the original Jurassic Park did. It just proves that Spielberg is the master storyteller. Okay, yeah. he, he let it go a little bit with the sequel, but the first one holds up so well, effects-wise. I mean, this was with the beginning of CGI. And I saw a little behind-the-scenes video of them using, uh, during the Raptor sequence, using men in suits, which I never knew. They were doing all the tests at the Stan Winston studio, and I never knew that after all this time. Mm. And you just think how incredible that film was. That was a perfect combination of not just relying on one kind of special effect, animatronics, uh, CGI, uh, puppetry, stop motion. They used a little bit of stop motion here and there. Uh, absolutely phenomenal. We should deep dive it. We should, if we've not already. I, I still need to finish indexing all the deep dives. And yeah, you know, my mind's not what it used to be. So I can't remember what we've deep dived and what we haven't. If we haven't, then we should do it. Because <laughs> next week we're going to have a, uh, a, a special episode. Uh, um, we're going to say filling episode, a bottle episode. But we, we should drop in a deep dive into Jurassic Park if we've not already done so. Yes. Um, 
Quick news. Yes. I got an email today saying that the Australian people love us. Oh, that's fantastic. Hello, Australia. We're in the top 50 entertainment podcasts in Australia. <laughs> wow. Hi, Australia. I've got an aunt in Australia. Pop along and say hello to us. She lives uh, in the Blue Mountains. That's great news. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Utah. You're old news now. Your history. Australia <laughs> well, hello, are our new fans. Uh, Australia. Thank you for listening. I'm glad to know that we've, we're reaching the opposite side of the world. It is. It's a beautiful place. Uh, I've been there a couple of times. Absolutely love it. And in fact, what we should do is we, in tribute to Australia, we should do uh, an Australian film deep dive. Mad Max. Mad Max. Mad Max scene. <laughs> Frisky Road. Now, uh, which uh, a load of people this week have been commenting online. And it happened to me as well. Amazon Prime, for some reason, in the number one recommended for you, had a film called Mad Maxine Frisky Road. Okay. Which is a, a softcore porn version of Mad Max, which is awful. It's a, Yes, I watched it. <laughs> I, I never awful. expected it to be any good. And I don't know how much they've spent for Amazon to promote it to everyone's feed, but there's a load of us online going, why is this popping up in your recommendeds? What's going on? It's garbage if, if it pops up in your recommended do not do what i did and feel the temptation to go how bad could this be because it made winnie the pooh blood and honey look like an oscar-winning masterpiece that's how bad it can be i mean the porn wasn't even good <laughs> that's the poster not even is it a poor film the porn's not any good either they've clearly paid for some um, promotion with amazon but they probably paid more to promote it through amazon than the film actually cost to make <laughs> It's awful. We will do a bona fide classic Australian film and a tribute to us being in the top 50 podcasts in Australia. Walkabout? Walkabout. No, there's a film that I absolutely adore. Yes, we'll consider that uh, an in tribute to Australia. We'll be calling you out every week. Um, talking of weeks, it's been a heck of a week in British politics, which is going to have an influence on our social challenge. But before I give you this week's question, what was the responses for last week's question. Andy, what did we ask? We asked, who's that actor who might be a lead actor at times, but is generally known for support actor or character acting that always makes you interested in the part? They always bring their A game. They always bring something special. And we've had a, a scattering of replies. Carl Hodkin, he actually remembered to reply to it. Thank you, Carl. He'd have to say Jonah Hill, and that's a great choice. Mm. Um, he's always solid in support. His, his favourite supporting roles that he's seen him in would be when he played Donnie in The Wolf of Wall Street, Jason in Don't Look Up, and Peter in Moneyball. And yeah, three great roles. He's a good comic actor, but he's also a good dramatic actor. Well with you there, Carl. Stevie Dan, 1969, Ian Holm. Loved him in Alien and Fifth Element. And yeah, Ian, Ian Holm in anything was always yeah, a great classic turn to turn as Napoleon Bonaparte in the Time Bandit springs yes. instantly to mind. <laughs> Mike IA over on Mastodon gave us a list. And what a list. Joel Edgerton, Sean Harris. Oh, Sean Harris. Great choice. Merritt Weaver, Kate Dickey, Don Cheadle, the great Harry Dean Stanton, yeah. Eddie Marson. Oh, Eddie Marson. Diane West, Wendell Pierce. Anne Dowd, Chris Cooper, Lou Gossett Jr., Ernest Borgnine, John C. Riley, Lee J. Cobb, Lily Taylor, Sam Rockwell, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure who yada, yada, yada is, but I'm sure they've been in some <laughs> Italian great actor. <laughs> um, Lily Taylor would, was going to be on my list when I was going to offer up my suggestions, because I said J.K. Simmons and then Lily Taylor, because Lily Taylor, whatever she pops up in, 
she just adds i was thinking of high fidelity i was thinking about the first conjuring movie she just adds mm. that slice of excellence to everything she just always gives a fantastic performance angie who's at stranger sites at horrorclub.com on mastodon kathy bates walton goggins cch pounder stephen rear and again, Harry Dean Stanton. Good call on CCH Pounder for me. Yep. Aussie at Mastodon World. And anyone who heard my review of Hypnotic the other week will understand exactly why. William Fitchner, who I agree yeah. is always someone who brings something. He was the only thing worth seeing in Hypnotic, uh, which Aussie agreed with, which is why he was put off with the way that they ended up using him, which, you know, he gave everything to it, but he wasn't given enough to work with. Always someone who will look out for in films. I was just thinking of his, him turning up in the film Go. Oh, there's a film to deep dive. Yes. That's added to the list. Over on Facebook, Lindsay Story. Maybe Christopher Lloyd? He never seems to be the lead, but you always like his character? Yes. Yeah. Right from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest right to present day when he popped up in Nobody in recent years. Yeah. Every time he's on screen, he always brings something and he's always an absolute joy. Stephen Young, Michael Stuhlberg, Men in Black 3 and Shape of Water, two examples. Nice choice. Janet Melling threw in as well, Sam Rockwell, after The Green Mile and his three billboards performance yeah. was second to none. I may argue that Sam Rockwell does have leading man potential. I'm thinking in particular of Moon. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're not saying that he hasn't done any leading man stuff. We're just saying that whenever they pop up in a support role, they, always, they never just settle for support. They always deliver more than what the role necessarily needs. My choices, and I had trouble narrowing in this down. I mean, on the initial thoughts, Christoph Waltz, who always brings something delightful in every support role, always dominates the screens. In recent years, and I've mentioned this every time I've mentioned reviews of films which she's provided voices or popped up in, Aquafina is starting to become a charming delight on screen. Vera Farmiga, who again can do great, great lead, yeah. but she's always solid in support. Tilda Swinton, whenever she pops up in any minor roles, she instantly lifts whatever she's in. Peter Stormer, Paul Dano, Catherine Hahn, Lakeith Stanfield, Vincent Cassell, who I've mentioned a few times over the past few years when he's popped up in films. Steve Buscemi. I'm going to add Ed Harris into that. Ed Harris, definitely. Richard Attenborough. There's a huge list of people who I look out for, but I think that it's definitely Christoph Waltz has to be top of my list at the, for modern era of filmmaking. Anytime he's cast in a film, I'm instantly paying more attention. Excellent. Some really good choices out there, folks. Um, I'm glad uh, glad to hear from you, as ever. Here's uh, an interesting one for you. So it's been a, an odd week in politics, not just here in uh, good old Blighty, but across the US as well. Without getting into any politics, it got me thinking about on-screen politicians. Who is the best and worst of on-screen politicians? Who is the best president or prime minister? Who is the worst, which is difficult to make that assumption with real life, I know, but who are the best and the worst on-screen politicians? Who would you like to be governing your country or who would you hope for their resignation letter from? Let us know across all of the socials. Andy, where can they find us? They can find us on pretty much all social media channels. Just do a search on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon for Filmfile UK. We'll pop up there. We're on there. And you can get in touch with us there. If you're not on social media because you don't want the government spying on you yet, or you don't want e Elon Musk on your doorstep, you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or if you're listening through Spotify, the question of the week always gets added to the show description. 
you can answer it through there. I mean, we, we just offer so much choice. We do. And clearly, we're offering so much choice that's making us in the top 50 podcasts in Australia. Just wanted to say yes. that again because it sounds so good. <laughs> it sounds great. I wonder how many people will pick Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, definitely. Best president, deep impact. Worst politician, I'm edging towards Greg Stilson. Oh, yeah, good choice. Good choice, my friend. Of Ooh. course, Martin Sheen played probably the best president of all time in the West Wing. Yeah, I'll be narrowing down. I'll be I'll be doing some research over this week and see what if there's anyone who beats Stilson as being the worst politician ever. So that's for our socials. But what have we got on the show for you this week? Well, we've got reviews into two new releases at cinemas this week: Transformers: Rise of the Beasts, uh, Chevalier. And on streaming, I checked out Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. And this week's deep dive is into a 50-year-old classic. We're going to be talking about one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Yes, The Wicker Man. We've got news, we've got views, and we've got the box office. So, on to the box office for this week. Is Miles Morales still swinging high? Have those pesky Transformers beasted their way into the first position? Fast and the Furious, is it driven off a ledge? Let's find out with the box office. Well, those robots in disguise opened at the top of the US box office, taking 61 million this weekend, knocking Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse down into second place with 55.5 million. The Little Mermaid is still swimming around in third place with 23.2 million taken this week. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 holding in there in fourth place with 7.2 million. And the Boogeyman remaining in fifth place with another 7.2 million added to its total. Here in the UK, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse retained the top spot, taking another 4 million this weekend. Meaning that Transformers Rise of the Beasts opened in second place with 2.97 million taken. The Little Mermaid, again in third place, 2.12 million this weekend. Guardians in fourth place, 511,000. And Fast X, just about holding into the top five with another 475,000 added to its total. Transformers' opening weekend worldwide was just under 80 million. Not a particularly strong start, but given how much the franchise had been damaged in the past, not a surprising one either. Across the Spider-Verse has already surpassed the takings of the first film worldwide, which is now up to 313 million. The Little Mermaid is on 414 million and the holdovers are around 40% drop off week on week. So it's not doing too bad for retained business. And Guardians of the Galaxy has now passed 806 million worldwide. Fast X sputtering to a halt. It's now up to 653 million worldwide. Can it reach 700 million? It's debatable, but it might just might just make it over that finish line. So moving away from the box office and a quick update on the strike actions that have been mm. going on. There's no further developments on the actual Writers Guild strikes. And it, there's just what we're going to be talking about later in the news whenever things have been delayed, etc. What has now entered the fray, and we spoke about it a few weeks ago, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, has voted for the authorisation of strike action should the upcoming talks between them and the industry not reach a satisfactory arrangement by the end of the month. The vote was 97.91% in favour. Okay, those, that's a pretty good <laughs> odd then that, that that might happen. WGA one was around about 95% in favour. So this is even more 
in favour of it. And again, like the, with the Writers Guild one, this is mostly targeting the factors such as revenue from streaming, use of AI and protections on pay deals. It's all the same ever-changing entertainment industry that we live in that is causing them to do this. Let's let's point something out right at the top end of this before people start squealing. Actors get paid far too much anyway. This is not always about your leading actors. This no. is your supporting actors. These are the people who come in and say three or four lines. These are people yeah. who are series regulars, but only get paid when they're in an episode. You know, what what people don't seem to know is that even if you've signed up to um, a long running series and you come in and you do your little bit, let's say you are a reoccurring character in one of the Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds, but you're not a major yeah. character. You only get paid for the episode that you're in, even though you might be a regular. So if you're not in one week, you don't get paid. The writers haven't yep. dropped you into that one, you don't get paid. So it looks like a great gig, but when that gig's over, you're a jobbing actor. So before everybody goes, yeah, they're always more multimillionaires. Yes, the stars are, but this is not aimed at those people. As it is with the writers, and the same thing affects writers. You know, you might get paid an awful lot for a script, but unless you've got another script ready to go or you're on a, a series, then that's it. You used to get your additional income from Blu-rays and DVD sales and VHS sales. But as we know, that's now a case of diminishing returns. It's worth noting that if the Screen Actors Guild does end up going into strikes, there's a better chance of yeah. that being broken as quick as possible which hopefully will set the template up for the Writers Guild negotiations to be completed, and yeah. also the rumoured Directors Guild potential um, renegotiations and strike action that is on the horizon as well. This is all happening at the same time for obvious reasons. We're in an ever-changing world of entertainment media. There's a lot of factors that are impacting on wages of everyone across every line of production. There's no strike definite at this point in time. I reckon they'll avoid it because they'll negotiate yeah. the heck out of it up until the end of this month and they'll sign off on a deal that works for SAG, which will hopefully then convey itself across over onto the WGA's negotiations and get something on the table that can be written off. We'll let you know as soon as we know any further. But everyone should be paid fairly for everything that they do. And if you're getting paid for a movie which is planned for a cinema release and it gets adjusted and suddenly splits to be a miniseries on TV, your pay should reflect the fact that your status has changed and you are now doing episodic TV. There's all these factors that are being impacted by the streaming industry. So in DC news, we know that strike not intended. We are approaching the beginning of Superman Legacy. James Gunn's gone very quiet on Twitter and uh, reasonably so, because he basically suggests that he doesn't want to give anything away until it's been cast. But I'm hearing that there are a few names in the running. Of course, we said this the other week with the Fantastic Four, and we've heard absolutely mm. nothing since then. But uh, Superman Legacy, Andy, who, who are you hearing about? So apparently they're now down to three people who are confirmed to be being interviewed for the role. These three names were doing the rumours a few weeks ago. Nicholas Holt, who you'll, you'll know from so many great films, including Mad Max Fury Road, is potentially going to be in the running to play Superman. Oh, well, you see, I'd heard Nicholas Holt was in the running for Lex Luthor. No, there's no no casting for Lex Luthor at this point in time. The only characters that they're casting for right now are for Superman and for Lois Lane. David Coventsweat from Pearl and Hollywood and Tom Brittany 
from Grantchester is in the running for Superman as well. On the lowest lane front, Emma McKee from Sex Education, Rachel Brosnan from The Marvelous Miss Maisel, and Phoebe Denever from Bridgerton. They're the names of the finalists. Let's. Uh, it's going to be a matter of a week or two weeks, and we'll get confirmation on who's being cast, and then we'll start getting Lex Luthor, Jimmy Olsen, and other supporting characters being made. They want to lock in Superman and Lois first before they lock in anyone else. Isn't it interesting that now when you look at casting, you would have gone during the Christopher Reeve era, you'd have to go for an American actor to play Superman. But now, say we are with Spider-Man, yeah. you, you, you're looking at, at the British actors in that lead role. I wonder what the thinking is of when it comes to, to English actors. Is it the, the unknown quantity? You know, Henry Cavill was known, but he wasn't a big name before Man of Steel. It's just always interesting that, mm. that now you certainly sort of look at British or even Australian actors in, in that lead role. Oh, we'll see. Yeah, British actors used to always be villains. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're living in a modern era now where the American actors seem to be the villains and the British actors seem to be getting yeah. cast as the heroes. It's a much better world. <laughs> in addition, on Superman Legacy, James Gunn has confirmed that he's not going to waste any time in making connections between this, as we've already said, He's having an already established heroic universe. Everything's already going to be there. And apparently, characters from The Authority are going to debut alongside the Man of Steel in the yeah, new film. Yeah, I saw that. The characters, for those who don't know, were created by Warren Ellis. And they're a team of morally grey superheroes who get the job done by any means necessary. Um, a film based on The Authority was announced alongside Legacy. But it appears that they're going to be introduced as part of Superman Legacy before they get their own film. What do we got on Marvel's side? I did see that they have released the first few minutes of Secret Invasion online. They have. Uh, they're sowing the seeds for that. It's only a couple of weeks away. Yeah, looking forward we to that. to see how that plays out. Fingers crossed. On the Sony Marvel side, producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura has confirmed that Madam Web won't be a typical action film yeah they're looking at going down the thriller route aren't they yeah it is weird it's not an action picture it's rather more of a thriller the reason being that the character's skill set is not conducive to an action piece i mean if you look at what sony are doing with their marvel properties anyway they're not conducive to any piece <laughs> hey where's the craven the hunter trailer where's that killed and skinned and put up on someone's wall de bonifanatura promises that the film will be familiar to the audience in terms of what universe it's playing in. Oh, so it's going to have that whiff of quality <laughs> that we expect from Venom and Morbius. Dakota Johnson stars as the main character alongside Sidney Sweeney, Celeste O'Connor, Isabel Marseille, Emma Roberts, Mike Epps and Adam Scott. The only thing that makes me kind of hopeful of this is it's directed by Jessica Jones's S.J. Clarkson. Yeah. And that's the only bit of hope that I've got that something can happen with this. And it will arrive just in time for Valentine's Day next year. So there's a way to ruin a relationship, eh? <laughs> hey, look, we'll, we'll give it a chance because that's what we do. Uh, I mean, we're going on what we know about the usual style of Sony spider movies. Of course, they brought us um, into the Spider-Verse and across the Spider-Verse. So they can't be all that bad. So maybe this is the one. Maybe, guys, this is the one. You know what? Interestingly enough, I, I've just regained my love for the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. I think uh, Amazing Spider-Man is a much cleverer film than we thought mm -hmm. it was when we, we first talked about it. I think it's got problems, it's got a lot of problems, but there's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in there. I've always maintained with the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man that I think that that's a better origin film 
than Sam Raimi's. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Film. So, you know, Spider-Man 2 was fantastic. Yeah. I'm not going to knock that. That That is it's... the pinnacle of Spider-Man Oh, films. there we've done a Superman for me. Sam Raimi's first film was fun, but I don't I, I don't think it quite got it right. Oh, right. I, there's a lot of issues that I had with it, whereas Andrew Garfield's one, yes, it was retelling the same story, only with the lizard instead of Green Goblin. It's only failing was that it was retelling a story that we'd only had a few years ago. Yeah. Aside from that, I think it's a much better structured film, and I think that the cast had just hit the ground running on it. Garfield it was a magnificent, magnificent Spider-Man. So we know that the sequel to Extraction, which starred Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> the sequel Extraction 2 is due to land on Netflix. But what hadn't been known is that Idris Elba had already joined the cast. Looking forward to Extraction. I had a lot of fun uh, with the first one. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this. And it's good to see Hemsworth play uh, a, a new franchise character as well. Yeah, um, I thought it was just, it was okay. It was average entertainment. It's enough for me to be interested to watch it again. It, and it, and it's coming out in the next week, so oh, really? we will talk close. about it when we return to the show. Looking yeah, forward it's to uh, that. right on our doorstep. Other Netflix films. So, Rebel Moon. We now know that it's going to be coming out on December the 22nd. We know for definite it's going to be in two parts. And now we also know that Zack Snyder, in what is now becoming quite a tiresome move, is going to make two different versions of both parts of the film. Yeah, I saw this story. Uh, let me get something off my chest before we, we talk about it. What is it with Zack Snyder when he makes a film that is not one definitive version or vision for that film? And we've seen it at almost every film that he's made. There are some exceptions, but Watchmen, there was a director's cut version of that. There was a slightly yep. extended cut of uh, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, the same with... Yep. Sucker Punch had a slight variation. Yep, Sucker Punch had a, a slight variation cut, was a completely different cut. There always seems to be... Um, he's never seemed satisfied with whatever cut goes out, including stuff that he's, he's created. Army of the Dead didn't. I'm sure if he had the chance, he, he he could extend it. And of course, of course, we're not taking into consideration all, all the DC stuff, always had extended cuts or variations but it seems to be his thing and he never seems to have a lock on a final picture i mean you can kind of get it with the films that got cinematic release yes yeah, because instance. you know the studio will start to say this needs to be edited down to this like you can't do a 14 hour film etc unless you're german and you're calling it Heimat. but this is getting released to netflix so he's not got those restrictions so why not just release the standard cut his reason for it is he says that the first cut is one which anyone can enjoy, so family audiences, whilst the second will be, and in his words, for fans of mine and people who are ready to take a deeper hard dive, that'll be fun for them. So, edgelord man babies who will insist this is the definitive <laughs> version and fixes all of the issues with the overall film like some miracle glue, when all it actually does is add in some swearing and more scenes to really explain the already pretty simplistic plot that even a five-year-old could decipher. That's how I translate that. Because this is all that you get from those man babies that follow him, is that, oh, you need to see the ultimate cut. If you say Batman versus Superman was not good. Oh, you clearly haven't watched the ultimate cut. Yes, I have. Oh, but it explains it better. It didn't explain anything I couldn't work out from that very simple storyline. That's not the problem with the film. Yeah, well, let's not go down that road. But yeah, it, 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 it's something, I think it's a certain re taking responsibility for your final cut. There are a lot of directors going back and tinkering with their own work. Now, sometimes it, it holds fire. I'm looking at Michael Mann delivering more than one mm -hmm. cut on Manhunter. There are certain films that just don't need 
that amount of tinkering because ultimately I don't think it makes them better unless it was a, a troubled production or there was something they couldn't do due to effects or they couldn't do due to studio interference. But a lot of the time we're looking at people like Michael Mann playing around with absolute classics. He did the same with Last of the Mohicans. But for, yep. for Snyder, it's it's never done. There never seems to be the definitive cut. There always seems to be this this extension of. It's fine with directors going back in hindsight and re-tinkering with things to try to get something that they intended but couldn't do at the time. But you shouldn't be still having hindsight while you're only in your first editing process. Yeah. That just means you haven't got a clue what film you're making. And that's what the problem is. And I think that, that sums up the problem with so much of Zack Snyder's content is that he doesn't really know what he wants to do. He's got all these ideas. He's got these visual ideas. We've seen his sketchboards. We've seen like how he plots out like what things are going to look like. But I don't think he knows how to put it together. Yeah. And that's where the problem is. Anyway, mark down December the 22nd when we can find out what his version of Star Wars. Hey, I'm looking forward to seeing this remake of Battle Beyond the Stars as much as anyone else. <laughs> Let's let's await the inevitable hashtags for Disney to sell Star Wars to Zack Snyder that will come on the back of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no. If it wasn't out in the universe, it certainly is now. And if that starts up a thing, just remember, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. You can blame me. Over to some jollier news. Okay. And I say jolly, but I'm going to be talking about an A24 horror, which are never really jolly. They're always quite disturbing. But what makes me jolly on this? And we've spoken about this actor's renaissance of recent years. A few times. Hugh Grant is going to be in an A24 horror film called Heretic, which is coming from Quiet Place and Boogeyman scribes Scott Beck and Brian Woods. And I am so interested. All that we know about the story is it's rumoured to be centering on two young women of faith who are drawn into a sinister cat and mouse game, which has been put on by an eccentric man who's got to be Hugh Grant. Not much else is known about the film, but I am so there for Hugh Grant's renaissance, especially going into an A24 horror. Hey, talking of A24, there was a trailer drop this week for a Australian supernatural horror flick, Talk To Me, and this looks, this looks the business. The story is uh, a group of friends discover how to conjure spirits up using an embalmed hand. Uh, they become hooked on this new thrill and new power until one of them goes too far and unleashes terrifying supernatural forces. It got rave reviews at the Sundance Film Festival, and with A24, it's currently got a 97% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which doesn't mean much, but A24 is certainly capable of delivering some really clever and interesting yeah. horror work at the moment, as well as their thriller stuff as well. I'm all there for anything A24 deliver. They're very creator-led. They're not studio-led. Yeah, they are. They're creator-led, uh, and, and that's what makes it work. And, well, it's kind of jokey horror, but do you remember the Leprechaun series of films? Leprechaun! I'm the Leprechaun! <laughs> I mean, you know what I remember it from? Mainly from Wayne's World. <laughs> Yes, they starred Warwick Davis as uh, the character of the Leprechaun across six films, including Leprechaun in Space. He's not expected to reprise the role for the new iteration, but Lionsgate are rebooting the whole franchise. It's going to get reimagined for a whole new generation. Philippe Vargas, who gave us Milk Teeth, will direct the new feature film from a script by Mike Van Wees, who worked on the live-action Lilo and Stitch film. Roy Lee, Barbarian and It, is going to produce alongside Miri Yoon. I, I don't know how I feel about this, because... Those films were trash. <laughs> yeah. But they're the kind of trash that you sit and watch with your mates and have a laugh with. The most memorable aspect of Leprechaun, didn't it debut Jennifer Aniston in the first film? It did indeed. That's all I remember. And I remember Leprechaun and the Leprechaun. 
I'm after your lucky charms. Erin Westerman, president of production for Lionsgate, has said 30 years after its debut, 30 years, it's 30 years again, <laughs> this franchise still casts a spell and we're thrilled to be bringing it back with a new vision. Do we need this? No. Will I watch this? Yes, oh, you yes. Know you of course will. I'm going to watch you this. You know you will. <laughs> and also for franchises that should never have been brought back, we had Hocus Pocus 2 not long ago, and now we've got Hocus we did, Pocus sadly. 3 has been greenly. Oh. Anne Fletcher and Jen D'Angelo will be returning to direct and write, respectively. I'll just look forlornly away. <laughs> Following their collaboration on the second film, the second film set a record, apparently, for opening weekend streaming release with 2.7 billion minutes viewed. It ended up being the number five most streamed movie of 2022. And I just don't get the love. I genuinely don't get the love. But there's clearly an audience out there who are clamouring for more of this trio of witches from Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy Najimy. It's just not me. And I won't be watching this one. So I've got a bit of news. Do you want to know what I've got? Go on, man. Tron Aries. Yay. <laughs> Though casting hasn't been officially announced uh, for the upcoming follow-up to Tron Legacy, wasn't it? Tron Legacy, yeah. We know that Gerard Leto, he of high acting skills, <laughs> is rumoured to have been added to the cast alongside the very good Evan Peters and Jodie Turner-Smith, all in key roles. That's all we know so far about the latest Tron movie, but when we hear more, we'll certainly let you know. Very excited for that. I do love the Tron films. Huge fan of them. Ryan Reynolds and Kenneth Branagh are going to be working together. Now there's a combination. The Abbott and Costello of this particular generation. Uh, this is a film called Mayday for Apple Original Films and Skydance, which comes from directors okay. Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, who you might recognise the name of from films such as Game Night and the recent joy that should have done much better at the box office, Dungeons and Dragons, Honour Amongst Thieves. Yeah, we talked about that last week, which doesn't look like... It did enough business to warrant a sequel, which is a crying yeah. shame. Mayday is based on original pitch from Goldstein and Daly, who came to Skydance earlier this year with the idea and began developing it. Reynolds showed interest in April to join the film and the project began moving forward, but a start date is still uncertain. Nonetheless, it's expected that this will be the next thing that Reynolds shoots once he wraps Deadpool 3, which is currently in production. Story details from Mayday are under wraps, so we don't know anything yet, but... That's a good combination. Ryan Reynolds and Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, never had that on my bingo cards. Anyone who did has just made millions. And um, we mentioned about it a while ago. And as we're getting closer to the Barbie film, which sees Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling teamed up, rumours have started up again about their proposed prequel to Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, we did mention that a couple of weeks ago. It's now scheduled to begin shooting later this month on June the 30th, according to the production list. Wow. It's going to be a heist comedy, which will reportedly take place in France for a story set in 1960s Europe and serves as something of a remake of the original 1960 film that starred Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Angie Dickinson, amongst others. Jay Roach is helming from a screenplay written by Carrie Solomon. Apparently, the backdrop is going to be the Monaco Grand Prix as well. Okay. That kind of takes Margot Robbie off the list for Fantastic Four, doesn't it? It kind of does. It, it, it depends how long this production is, how, the, how long this shoot is, but it does suggest if they're wanting this to be a new start for the Oceans franchise, she's going to be tied into this 
Roach describes it as an old-fashioned epic love story adventure disguised as a heist, and I'm all there for heist movies, and I've enjoyed every single one of the Oceans films so far. Yeah, recently we saw Oceans 8, Yeah, and I thought it was good. I enjoyed it when I saw it at the cinema, but it was uh, I, I thought it's got a lot going for it. So I'm all there for more heist action from the Oceans gang. So we don't get to do this very often, but Star Wars news. The latest Star Wars TV series, which started as a kind of a backdoor pilot in The Mandalorian and a beloved character from the animated series. But because I never watched the animated series, I didn't know who it was. I was more interested in the fact that it was Rosaria Dawson. Uh, we know that Ashoka is due to hit our screens on Disney Plus on the 23rd of August. The character played in the live action form by Rosaria Dawson debuted in the Clone Wars movie and all the subsequent series that was devised by George Lucas, along with his very own Padawan, Dave Filoni, as a teenage apprentice to Anakin Skywalker. Since then, Ashoka's seen her master turn to the dark side, rejected the doctrine of the Jedi Order, and aided the rebellion against the Empire. Um, I've got a lot of time for Rosaria Dawson. Mm. Apparently, she's a big geek, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. I thought that particular episode was really really well done but I'm, I'm not tied into any of that animated lore so it, a lot of it sort of passed me by and there's one thing that I'm, I'm becoming slightly disillusioned with other than andor with the, the star wars tv series when mandalorian started it was his own thing yeah but as, as it's gone along it's tied in more and more to various characters who i know nothing about and therefore I've, I've got no skin in the game with i caught some of the clone wars animated series but then realized that for every decent three-parter story that they did there was 14 episodes of trash i'm sorry guys out there who love clone wars it wasn't all gold you need to stop looking at it with the rose-tinted Jedi specs. <laughs> it's got the occasional good story, but the majority was just awful. And I've not bothered at all with any of the other animated series. I've I've recently started watching... Um, I, I didn't watch any of the Star Wars Visions, you know, the short animations from... Oh, I watched the Wallace and Gromit people do it. I've not seen not seen that one, because that's season two. That was cute. And I got to the end of season one and thought, I am not digging this. I am genuinely not digging it. I, I totally agree with you. I, I kind of force myself to watch some of them because i watched it with the child yeah. but generally i i didn't care i think is the is the best thing to say yeah. which is never a, a good thing to say but it didn't hold my attention they, they weren't dull they were very clever in places but they really really didn't hold my attention apart from the ardman one which i thought was was cute but no i've i've, uh, I've, I've not really invested any time there's been a rumor going around, and it is truly a rumor, that George Lucas wants to buy back his Star Wars characters from Disney. I can't ever see that happening. And at this stage, it just seems to be a rumor. Yeah, let's be honest. If he bought it back and made a Star Wars film, and it's terrible, people will then suddenly say, sell it back to Disney. Because the fan yeah. base just won't accept that not everything has to be perfect for you. Like I said, the animated shows mean nothing to me. However, I did like the sequels. I like the sequel trilogy. It's a mess because it's not yeah. consistent, but each of the films individually works for me on an individual level. There has been some trailer drops this week. The Witcher Season 3 trailer dropped. The last series for Henry Cavill. Again, not invested any time into The Witcher, so nothing I can tell you. I got three episodes into Season 1 and just gave up. You got two more episodes more than I did. Yeah. 
Special Ops Lioness, the first trailer from Yellowstone creator Taylor Sheridan's new spy series landed. And the Expendables 4 trailer, which stars Sylvester Stallone, Dolph Lundgren and Jason Statham. Just shows that the old gang are back in action. And speaking of gangs back in action, for all those people who are still waiting for the next Fast and Furious film, Fast X Part 2 has been given a release date of April the 4th, 2025. Yeah, finally, it should hopefully end. Please, <laughs> yeah. let it end. Crosses the finish line. <laughs> that, folks, that's the news for this week. This is The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you're not a subscriber, I am, and there's no reason you shouldn't be, then you should be. Andy, shouldn't they? They really should. They should. If the people in Australia can be subscribers, then the rest of you in the world should also be subscribed. Hello, Australia. Hello, Australia. Uh, yeah, it's dead easy to do as well. All you have to do, whatever you're listening to us on the moment, look on there. There'll be a plus or there'll be a heart or there'll be a like or there'll be a subscribe button. Anything, depending on what the format is, click on that. And if there's a review system on there, give us five stars. Go on. You know we deserve it. Even if you're hating the show, give us five stars because that means that more people yeah, just despite will us. listen to it, including people who you hate. And so it'll be your revenge on them that they get recommended this five-star podcast. Ah, that clever they trick. It's smart. Reverse psychology, yeah. that's what you're doing. But you don't hate us, let's be honest. You all, you are enjoying us. We're You've lovely. got this far in the episode. You must be enjoying it. So rate I'm us, enjoying it. review us, follow us, and get in touch. Yeah, make us happy. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. Yes, we are deep diving what can only be described as the classic British horror film. Directed by Robin Hardy, starring the late, great Edward Woodward, Britt Eklund, Ingrid Pitt and Christopher Lee. From a screenplay by Anthony Schaefer and inspired by David Pinner's 1967 novel Ritual, we're going to give you The Wicker Man. I have come here from the mainland to investigate the disappearance of a young girl, Rowan Morrison. That's her name? You know her? No, never seen her before. You suspect foul play? I suspect murder. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. Where is Rowan Morrison? <laughs> You wouldn't want to be around here or needy. Not the way you feel. Where is Rowan Morrison? It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Hail the Queen of the May! Hail the Queen of the May! Oh, You simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. The Wicker Man, regarded by many film critics and by many horror critics as the Citizen Kane of horror movies. The plot is a simple one. It centers on the visit of a police officer from the mainland, Sergeant Neil Howie to the isolated Scottish island of Summer Isle in search of a missing girl. 
how a, a devout Christian is appalled to find the inhabitants of the island have abandoned Christianity and now practice a form of Celtic paganism. How his investigation leads him down a dark path to one of the most grueling conclusions of any film that you'll have ever seen, The Secret of the Wicker Man. To say this is one of the classic horror movies, uh, it's been a long time since I've revisited it, and I've never seen it on the big screen. I saw it on TV. In fact, I watched it with my dad. It was late night on BBC Two, and it left one hell of an impression. I've seen it subsequent times since, and I find this an incredibly oppressive film, terrifying for the wrong reasons. Or should I say terrifying for different reasons? There is no sort of existential threat throughout the film. There's this just general sense of unease that runs throughout the movie. Um, Edward Woodward was probably best known at that time for playing Callan, a retired spy on British TV. Christopher Lee was doing something different in horror roles. This is one of those films that, for me, just gets under your skin. Uh, and the more that you're drawn into the storyline and what is actually going on, which now has been done many, many different times before in very different films, is, uh, is, is a, it's a very, very unnerving horror film. It's not scary until the end. It's just incredibly, incredibly unnerving. Described as a horror, but it's far from what people would call horror today. No jumps, no dollops of blood, no monsters. It's just that slow, rising unease that lingers at the back of your mind. And it's rewatching that this this week. Each time that I rewatch this, I, I appreciate it more and more. And it's a five-star film completely for me. But every time I watch it, I start to like really absorb the location, the setting, the tension, the build-up, and the story, the very slight story of the investigation. But all the little weaving that it does. And what I got this time around watching it was the play on religion it's the you know the strong catholic faith of sergeant howie versus the pagan beliefs of the islanders and neither religion is shown in much of a positive light the catholicism of howie is constantly judgmental of other cultures and beliefs and not very accepting of others so before i think i think the reason this film works and the reason it's considered a, a classic is it's because it's an intelligent piece of filmmaking mm. and it's so subtle as you said the the thrills in it are there but they are understated it's more about the journey and the mystery than it is about and, and this slow build of terror as you say as opposed to, to jump scares it's also yeah. quite witty as well genuinely fantastic performances but the reason this stays with you is the the ending is the ending pun intended burns itself into your eyeballs edward woodward's look of absolute terror is the best terrorized reaction to something that someone sees that you'll ever see as he steps into view of the giant wicker man and realizes what his fate is going to be and it's blood curdlingly brutal the way that he yells out um you know crying out for his god you know praying to be allowed passage into the kingdom of heaven and that's when his belief is really really put to the test there's some nice touches within a lot of this film that i hadn't fully picked up on on previous viewings there's things like you know was the innkeeper and his daughter trying to give Howie an escape to not be part of the ritual? Because the reason why he's part of the ritual is he's pure. Yes. He's a virgin. He's dedicated to, you know, he won't, he won't sleep with anyone. He's, he's pure Catholicism through and through. And the daughter tries to seduce him, but he turn, he 
turns away from her. That would have been his out. And also they try to put him to sleep on the day of the ritual as another attempt to get out. And that's a nice little subtlety that not all the islanders want this to go through with, but they realize that he probably will have to go through with it. And then there's the line towards the end when um, Howie sows the seed of Summer Isle's own downfall by pointing out the reality of why the crops aren't growing is the not for the temperate climate of that island. They're from the Caribbean. They're from other parts of the world. They will right. never grow on that island. And he points out as like, what happens when this doesn't work? Next year, the sacrifice has to be bigger and it'll only your, your death will be enough. And he's sowing the seeds, even though he knows what his fate's going to be. He's sowing the seeds for Summer Isle to be sacrificed himself the following year and thus ending this legacy. It is a film that works on many, many levels. Um... My take is, is slightly different than yours on that, but I, I just think that's one of the great pleasures of The Wicker Man. There mm. are so many, so many interpretations, depending on your point of view as the spectator. The confrontation between modern Christianity and, and pagan community, the idea of he's drawn to the island, isn't he, because of the yes. case of the missing girl. But is the missing girl just a, a, a facade to get into the island? Or while he's there, they realise he's a virgin. I can't remember how it plays out. Well, it's it's all suggestive. It doesn't make clear whether they specifically chose him to come to the island yeah. because of his um, devout faith. And his purity. Or whether that was just a coincidence. But it, it it's strongly hinted that it is his purity that is being tested throughout leading to the sacrifice when it's proven that he would be it. It's a film that, like you say, is open to interpretation and there's multiple cuts of the versions as well, which yeah. enable you to analyse some of the structure and some of the scenes from different ways. I've only seen the cinematic cut, the original cinematic cut, and I know that there have been countless uh, versions. There's been the restoration uh, during the mid-70s. Hardy made inquiries about the film, hoping to restore to its original versions. Uh, along with Christopher Lee and Schaefer, Hardy searched for his original cut or any raw footage that may still have existed, uh, but they appear to have been lost. Uh, Alex Cox has said that the negative would end up in the pylons that support the M4 motorway. <laughs> uh, and Hardy recalled that a copy of the film made prior to the cuts that from the US distributor, Roger Gorman, may possibly still exist. There was a US VHS version which was the original 99-minute version that was available in the US. And then in 2001, there was what's known as the Director's Cut. So from what we know, Corman's copy are truly being lost, but a telecine transfer to one-inch videotape existed. Uh, missing elements were combined with the film elements from the previous versions, uh, in particular additional scenes of Howie on the mainland uh, being restored, showing him to be the object of gossip at his police station, establishing his devout religious qualities. Uh, but it, it looks like the uh, the original work version uh, no one's ever seen, and it looks like it's lost for all time. Yeah, the 99-minute version. The closest that there was to that is the US VHS version, but even that was not a complete version of the original cut. We did have the final cut in 2013 as well, which was actually shorter than the US VHS version and the director's cut. It was tidied up and trimmed. And that's the version that I've watched this week because that's the one that I've got on my uh, Blu-ray collection. But regardless of what version that you watch, this is just one of those films that it's timeless in its presentation. The, the, the strange island setting gives it that it can be set at any point in time. It doesn't specify that this is this moment in time. 
that's one of the issues that I have with the rather rather interesting, shall I say, Nicolas Cage remake. Be- before we talk about that, there was uh, a script treatment by Schaefer for the loathsome Lambton Worm, a, a direct sequel that had more fantasy elements, but Hardy had no interest in the project and it was never produced. In yep. 2006, we, the, the American remake, and in 2011, there was a what could be said a, a spiritual sequel directed by Hardy, The Wicked Tree, which featured uh, Lee in a cameo appearance. But let's talk about the Nicolas Cage remake. Revisiting that, this one this week, and people were asking me, why do you do this to yourself? It's like, commitment. <laughs> why, Andy? Why? Commitment. And, you know, it's unfair to talk about it and criticise it if it's so old that it's not fresh in my memory anymore. So that's why I've revisited it. And the problem is that whilst the original Wicker Man seems timeless and you can watch it now and appreciate it completely because the setting seems right, this one is instantly dated by the fact that it shows you too much of the world outside the community. Um, it takes everything from the original. It lifts dialogue and moments for pretty much page for page, scene for scene, but then stupidly tries to add in modern day aesthetics of jump scares, backstory, ghostly apparitions, personal connections, and typical horror aspects. Oh, and bees. Oh, and bees. (laughs) And ramps up what didn't actually need to be ramped up. Having Cage's character open the film, witnessing a trauma that actually makes no sense and is merely a forced addition at the start to make things seem disturbing and give Cage some ghosts to deal with throughout. It takes away from the core aspect of the film that it's supposed to be just a normal man who is stuck in this situation thinking he's doing the right thing and being manipulated. They then, at the midpoint of the film, reveal that the missing girl is actually his daughter in this film. And at that point, it's like, you have missed the whole point of The Wicker Man. Why are you remaking this film? This film is regarded as well one of the worst films <laughs> certainly of the year it came out and derided as being such a, a terrible movie uh, it lost to basic instinct 2 as worst picture at the golden raspberries yes it was an absolute stinker of a movie which is interesting because neil Labou, who directed it was known for making interesting well thought through small indie projects um i've got to be honest he's completely at fault because he didn't just direct but he wrote the screenplay for it as well um it is a truly truly an abomination of a of a film that doesn't understand best elements of the wicker man uh, and how to um interpret those in a, in a way that a, a modern audience could be they, they could have taken the best elements and done something very fresh with this idea of the wicker man and and use those same elements i'm never against a, a remake as long as it's interesting and brings something fresh to it this didn't in so many different ways best forgotten entirely um the version that i watched because again this is a film that has multiple oh is there versions. there are more than one versions of this i watched the version without the b mask scene towards the end This version instead goes to like a a cutaway shot and you just hear him screaming about his legs being broken before he's then bungled into the Wicker Man. And that's another thing. It's like, why does his legs have to be broken? Why does he have to be tortured before getting put into the Wicker Man? On the original film, he's completely like active. He's entrapped inside this Wicker Man. It's not that he's had his legs broken, but in this one, they feel that they need to limit him for some reason why they set fire to him. I don't know. It is a mess. I also did watch The Wicker Tree this week. Which is the spiritual sequel, so to speak. And if I was to say that this makes Nicolas Cage's film look a lot better in comparison, 
that tells you how bad the wicker tree is. Uh, the wicker tree is let down by the production values. It looks like a Hallmark Channel movie. It's got that bleachy kind of like TV kind of aesthetic to it. And the acting is utterly, utterly diabolical. It's not worth checking out. I know that it's um, Robin Hardy came back to do this one and he sees it as his spiritual sequel. But maybe he shouldn't have returned. Maybe he shouldn't have made this because it's a blemish. Don't check out The Wicker Tree regardless of what interest you might have in seeing what Hardy wants to do with it. Hardy also had ideas for a third film that have never come to fruition. After watching The Wicker Tree, I hope that they never do. To me, Andy, the, the closest there is to a modern-day interpretation, shall we say, of The Wicker Man has got to be Midsummer. Yeah, it's a film that explores similar themes. You've got someone who's drawn into a cultish kind of community and initially confused by what's going on around them, but then... It's, it, it has, again, that slow build, that tension, that sense that something's not quite right. And by the time they realise what's actually not quite right, it's too late because they're trapped within there. It is pretty much a modern-day successor to The Wicker Man. So much better than anything that has followed The Wicker Man. If you want to watch the classic that is the original Wicker Man, Andy, where can you find it? You can find it in its restored 4K version at cinemas this coming week. Check your local listings because it's on there somewhere. I'm sure it's probably on a streaming service as well, but this is a film that you should get a chance to see on the big screen. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for the reviews. Um, none I've seen, one I'm interested in. We'll see by the end whether I'm going to follow up on that one. Let's start with this week's biggie. That will be Transformers Rise of the Beasts. We are in the middle of a war. We have one last hope. Maximals, this is about the fate of all living things. Prime! We're not gonna win this fight. But we have a chance. Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Before we hear your review, Andy, the thing about Transformers for me is that Michael Bay managed to take a, a children's toy turn it into some sort of fetish piece that was overly sexualized um, and ended up by the end feeling quite unpleasant. And then thankfully Bumblebee managed to bring that sense of wonder and innocence into it. Is this falling between the two Bayisms and the joy of Bumblebee or has it picked its path already? Whilst not as warm and heartfelt as the previous outing Bumblebee, but a darn sight more enjoyable than the Michael Bay helmed outings were. This new entry into the franchise about robots in disguise isn't in any way, shape or form ashamed of its preposterous mythology and is simply presented in a fun, family-pleasing action-adventure manner, albeit one that may frazzle the brains of some folk who wouldn't know the difference between a Maximal and a Terracon. The film opens with some setup for the new species of Transformer, so those without the geek knowledge credentials of the comics and cartoons can get on board. It introduces us to the concept of Maximals, a race of Cybertronians who shift into beasts, not vehicles, and their conflict with the heralds of the dark god Unicron, the Planet Eater. These heralds, the Terracons, are seeking the Transwarp Key, and the remaining band of Maximals, led by Optimus Primal, flee to seek safe refuge to keep the key hidden. That refuge is Earth, many years in our past. The film then switches to the modern era. It's the mid-90s, and an ex-military electronics expert named Noah played by Anthony Ramos, is struggling to pin down a job 
and reluctantly agrees to help his friend Reek boost a car. But when that car turns out to be Mirage, one of the Autobots in hiding, a chain of events unravel that draws Noah to help Optimus Prime and his gang in preventing the Terracons from finding the key, pitting the group against the trophy-hunting leader of the menace, Scourge. Yes, it's all nonsense. And yes, the key is just a plot device to thrust the action from one scene to the next. But who cares? When it not only looks so good, but it isn't a shame to let the Transformers themselves be the stars of the film. The human characters certainly add to the events, but this is unashamedly a film about giant robots that transform. Does it make any sense as to why the Maximals have fur and feathers? Not at all. Does the film rely on convenience and contrivance of plot in order to race around the globe? Of course it does. Did I have a beaming smile on my face throughout? Very much so. Rise of the Beasts is simple blockbuster entertainment, leaning hard into the comic book stylings of the characters, whilst packing in enough fun, wit and humour to cause the occasional chuckle to erupt. It looks great, and while Stephen Capel Jr. doesn't quite give the film the polish that Stephen Knight did on the previous film, he certainly ensures that it delivers on the visual action front. Your next film, Andy, is... Landed at cinemas this week, Chevalier. I am Chevalier. Ah, yes, the show-off who spoiled Mozart's concert. Spoiled. <laughs> Improved, I think. You are quite a remarkable man, Chevalier. Master of the sword, maestro of the bow. He's wonderful. Spectacular. Bold. If you take the stage, I will take everything from you. Not everything is about you, people. The untold true story. Know very little about this, so uh, are you going to sell it to me? I'll admit to initially being intrigued by this film purely because of seeing Samara Weaving was cast in it. But as the film came around, I started to find I was just as interested in the story. Drawing on the life of French Caribbean musician and composer Joseph Ballone, the film is set in the period of French history just prior to the revolution. Joseph had been raised at a French boarding school and had a strong gift for music as well as for the sword excelling at fencing contests. As a young adult, he so impressed Queen Marie Antoinette that she granted him the title of Chevalier de Saint-Georges, which allowed him to live within the extravagance of the French elite. However, despite his court standing, his skin colour would always result in obstacles being placed in his way, and along his path in life, he began to make some very powerful enemies. Chevalier is led by a strong central performance by Kelvin Harrison, who imbues the lead figure with a deft mix of arrogance and humility, the contrasting sides of his nature always at war with each other. He also lends a strong dose of charm and wit to the lead, and makes it very easy to root for as this untold story plays out on screen. Support cast are adequate, Mini Driver standing out from the pack, Samara Weaving, switching from horror to period drama, does struggle slightly with an accent that doesn't quite know where it's going at times, but she does a commendable overall job as potential love interest Marie-Josephine de Montalembeau. The sets, the costumes, all lavish, with stark contrasts between the wealthy and the poor conveying well alongside each other. The period setting allows for the bubbling tensions of politics to be playing out in the background as we see the revolution seeds being planted. The telling of Joseph's story embellishes and exaggerates a few elements, as we come to expect from a true story but they're done to enhance the film and serve the life story itself. This is a splendid insight into an artist who many would never have been aware of, and it's well worth checking out. Last one on your review list is the new film by Guy Ritchie, which I, I've, I've 
gone off the Guy Ritchie path recently. I'm not been interested in since what's the last thing I saw? The Gentleman I thought was okay. I know you had a lot of love for it. Is this going to win me back? Because this is the film I'm most intrigued about this week. This is one that we spoke about quite a few times during production because it was Jake Gyllenhaal and it was a wartime, you know, the, the withdrawal of the troops from Iraq and Jake Gyllenhaal going to save the interpreter. And that's The Covenant. Hey guys, meet Ahmed, our new interpreter. Don't turn out to be a pain. Not me, sir. Well, I that man saved my life. John, you're going home. And now I have to go save his. Ahmed ended up with a price on his head from the Taliban. If you can find him, we'll airlift you out. I'm going to get that man and his family out. No, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Guy Ritchie seems to be quite busy these days, with a new film dropping every few months, so it seems. This latest one is a wartime action thriller, which sees Jake Gyllenhaal playing Sergeant John Kinley, who's serving in the war in Afghanistan. After an ambush on a routine inspection results in the death of his interpreter, he seeks a replacement and finds it in the form of Ahmed, played by Dar Salim, an unlikable ex-Taliban member who defected when the organisation killed his son. The pair strike up a close bond when a raid goes bad, resulting in the two fleeing from Taliban forces across enemy territory, which leads to Ahmed carrying Kinley to safety. Ritchie forgoes his usual style of flair for this film, showing a smart restraint and a respectful approach to what could be a very real life tale of modern combat. The events of recent years and the winding down of the US occupation of Afghanistan is a core element of the film, and whilst the main story is the strong bond these two very different soldiers grow through their duty, it's the situation in the country itself which is the actual story. Gyllenhaal is on strong form, but then again, he isn't a stranger to war films, having delivered another strong desert soldier performance early in his career in Jarhead. He has a subdued, battle-weary presence here and carries the weight of responsibility in every action. Dar Salim stands well beside him with a complex character who's stone-faced, his heart being shattered by his past trauma, but who has a very strong sense of duty. The action moments are sudden, shocking and brutal at times. No extended exchange of gunfire between parties here. These are all trained combatants and every shot counts. Grounded in reality, the frightening tension as time works against the troops in a land where everybody could be a hidden opponent weighs heavy throughout and Ritchie steps up his game here and has delivered perhaps his most mature film to date. The Covenant is a solid modern warfare film with a strong central premise performed well by two great leads. So that's this week's releases. But Andy, what have we got coming up? I know there's a film that you and I are very much looking forward to seeing. Oh, that'll be Greatest Days then, won't it? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> Cinemas this week sees The Flash open and also greatest days which is the take that musical which my other half is really really keen and she said she'd review it because you and i really aren't interested <laughs> um, now tv and sky sees a frank grillo action film paradise highway land this week and Patton oswald's comedy i love my dad also lands over on netflix it's extraction 2 and black mirror season 6 lands this week whilst over on disney plus the Stan Lee documentary lands this week. Definitely Intrigued going to check it by out. That. Uh, whether it's going to be a warts and all story. We're big Marvel fans. Um, Stan Lee meant a lot to us, so we're going to watch it anyway. And The Full Monty season one, which I'll be watching, but Lee probably won't. Oh, don't get me started on The Full Monty. I nearly got <laughs> ran out of town for my dislike of The Full Monty. I'm waiting until you make me watch something terrible for a deep dive again, and then I'm going to throw <laughs> The Full Monty in as a deep dive. <laughs> I discuss why I don't like it, and and... 
I, I think some of it works really well, but there are there are certain reasons why I dislike it so much, and I'm open to open to have that chat. Maybe sometime down the line, we shall inflict that upon you. But that's it on new releases this week. There's not a lot of big things. It's all about the Flash, isn't it? And we'll be telling you all about that in our special episode next week. But for this week, well, that's us done. We've made it almost to the end. But before we go, let's talk about our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we've either seen, played, ate, you name it. As long as it's a neat thing to us, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, this week's neat thing is... I've done the accent so many times. It's become a running gag whenever I drop into this accent. But the documentary about the man behind that accent landed on Netflix, and that's the Arnold documentary. Three parts documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, and the cover his athletic side through his bodybuilding is like entering into Mr. Olympia, Mr. Universe competitions that got him onto the path to stardom, to his acting work and to his politics of the past two decades. Each part focuses just on one chunk of it. It's told mostly by him through interviews and through background footage and whilst i knew all this before because after all i've read and also listened to the audiobook of his biography it reminded me of what it is about arnold schwarzenegger that always draws me in and he's just so charismatic in all the footage of him talking about his life and his family and you know it covers his wrongdoings as well you know this could have easily been a puff piece because we know that netflix have given him a load of money to do his own thing at the moment and this could have just been a puff piece that didn't dig into the dirt of it but it covers those allegations of misconduct that he had during his political campaign and he talks quite open and honestly about his indiscretions and the like, the relationships that he had and the impact it had on his family life. And you can't help but, at the end of it, just think, man, this guy is an absolute legend. Arnold Schwarzenegger is an absolute legend. I've got to agree with you. He's a massive part of our growing up. I mean, he yeah. was the biggest star, both physically and in box office <laughs> terms, uh, and has done some interesting work in his career and you know he's he's campaigning and his even though probably always seemed to me to be on the opposite end of where i am politically I, he's got a, an awful lot to say which i i totally agree with his this conversations about climate issues his his recent pieces of video that he's been putting out about uh ukraine yeah um, to say that he's a republican uh i think he's he's a, a, a very very interesting person with a, with some very interesting views and as he's got older i've become more aligned to to liking him even more um, and there are so many films of his that would make my top 20. So the Arnold documentary, which landed on Netflix, three parts. I got them all watched in one day. They were so compelling to watch. And it's such a good documentary series. Like I say, it could have been just been a puff piece, but thankfully it wasn't. Check it out. Uh, my neat thing this week is something entirely different. I sent this link to Andy because I, I found it just an, an incredible read. Uh, and the link is to cinephilebeyond.org and an essay that they have uh, about Alien, about the 40 years of the making of Ridley Scott's Alien and the impact it's had on filmmaking and, and some of the behind the scenes stuff, which I knew an awful lot about, but in this particular piece, uh, 40 Years of Hurt, Face Hugging Dreams and of Breathing Ridley Scott's Alien by Tim Palin 
is a, as an extraordinary insight to the production process that, that opened my eyes to the making of this classic film. And again, looking back that it's 40 years since Alien came out and the impact it's had, not only on myself as a, as a viewer, but on the way that it formed this idea of the future, the same way that Scott did with Blade Runner. This idea of working people being in space, blue collar guys just going about their job. It's never been bettered. Even James Cameron's version, which is damn good, don't get me wrong, mm. but each interpretation of, the, of Alien through the many sequels, as ne nothing's ever been as good as Ridley Scott's version. So there will be a lot in this article that you did know. But what I found very, very interesting is some of the casting ideas that they got. Uh, some of the discussions with actors that were going to go in a completely different track with who's going to play. This now iconic cast, the original actor that played the part of Kane had to drop out because they got sick and John Hurt came in. The whole development of Star Beast, Dan O'Bannon's and Ronald Shushet's original script to uh, where it became once Walter Hill got involved in it. It's an absolutely fascinating read, highly recommended. If you want to check it out, and if you're a fan of Alien, this is an amazing in-depth essay into the construction of one of the, if not the greatest sci-fi horror films of all times. So check out cinephiliabeyond.org. There's lots and lots of interesting in-depth articles on there. Uh, a very good one on uh, Walter Hill's Driver, but check out the article on Alien. Um, that, folks, that's us done for this week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, but we're dropping in to talk about um, The Flash. All being well. In the meantime, Andy, take care of yourself. Don't get and too you. hot. As long as they don't stuff me in a wicker man and set fire to me, I shouldn't get too hot. That's true, Andy. But come, it's time to keep your appointment with the wicker man. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Those, yeah, those doggies rolling, rolling. Rawhide. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I don't know, but I've, I've really had a, a, you know, when you've got a want that you want to watch something, Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers, yeah, it's been, it's been on my list for a while. Yeah, I think, yeah, oh, I must watch Blues Brothers, show the kids. Ignore the sequel. Yeah, I've never seen it. <laughs> Didn't bother. Oh, you've not missed out. Ah, that's what I gathered. The music's good. The music's great. Yeah. But the rest of the film is trash. Anyway. <clears throat> anyway, talking of trash. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on with the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And that's on the end credits. <laughs> Have they beasted their way? I mean, that sounds wrong. Would <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you rephrase it or would we just leave it in? No, we're, we're leaving it in. Dick-a-dick-dick-a-dick-dick. <laughs> I don't know why oh, I said dick then. But... <laughs> it took us a long time to get to that point. This is the film file and we are the film gate. Cake, cake. We're, <laughs> We're the film, film cake. cake. <laughs> We're cake. A home bake. <laughs> are we cake or are we podcast? <laughs> it's like a whole new TV show for Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Cake or podcast? Cake or podcast? I think it's a. I think it's a cake. Oh no! It was a podcast. <laughs> it was a podcast. Now broke my teeth on it. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have bitten. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> right. David Pinner's 1967 novel Ritual. Oh yeah, well spotted. <laughs> oh no, my no, my ice cream sensors kicked in. <laughs> I can hear everything on this on this headset. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, the, the joy of me being slightly deaf is I hear bugger all. <laughs>